This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Alan, how you doing? Great, boy. Busy week in aviation, huh? A lot of, a lot of things are changing yeah. here. Yeah, a lot of stuff's going on. So um, let's jump right into that. So Airbus is cutting 15,000 jobs. Alan, that's a big deal. It's a big deal because uh, in America, I always think about European companies never laying off anybody or or just letting people retire out of out of out of the industry. But Airbus needs to make cutbacks pretty quickly. Uh, they got to maintain their financial stability here, and with the the market in the airline industry, where a lot of airlines in the United States are only flying at about half. Half or maybe three quarters is what they're thinking going forward. Like Delta's thinking about getting to basically a three quarters aircraft level. There's just not going to be huge demand for new aircraft immediately. Uh, so whatever they've been building in the last couple of months is probably going to be it until the airline industry catches up. So they're talking about by the sometime next year, 5,000 employees in France, 5,100 in Germany, 1,700 in Britain, 900 in Spain, and mm-hmm. 13 others elsewhere. There is uh, obviously a, a factory, an Airbus factory down in Alabama, in the United States. There's also a Airbus um, engineering office in Wichita, Kansas, and maybe a couple others. But um, it, this is a far-reaching kind of layoff, and it's it's going to be hard for Airbus once they let those people go to, to sort of get them back. So if, if the industry does pick up pretty quickly, it's going to be hard to, to find those people. It seems like the American economy is going to pick up relatively quickly compared to some others. So in the engineering world, once you lose those engineers, they're going to find some other place to go that's more stable. And it's going to be really difficult, really difficult to get those people back. Well, uh, so yeah, Air, Airbus is shedding a lot of workers. Um, I mean, do you see this being, I mean, Boeing's doing similar things. They like are. we just heard that they've, they a lot of their orders are getting canceled. Mm-hmm. They are also uh, cutting production of the 747. So right. Before we get back to Airbus, uh, how do you? What's the story of the seven forty seven? Why why do they need to get rid of that airplane? Just like, I mean, did like, it not do what it was supposed to do. Well, the aircraft was built in the seventies, and it's been around about fifty years. And at this point, with the reduction in international travel, which is what it's going to be, uh, so Europe's going to open up to Europe. United States is pretty much open to United States, so you can fly internally in the United States anywhere you want to go for the most part. Uh, you don't need large aircraft like that going international because it's not international flights uh and it's also a combination too that the 747 is a four engine aircraft and the fuel burn's not great so this 777 yeah. and the new 777x uh, whatever they're calling that that version is going to be the replacement and airbus has done the same thing with the a380 because they have the a350 which is a twin aisle airplane which will take over for whatever the a380 had left um, so smaller airplanes are going to be a little more profitable. You're going to see people be really conscious about fuel also as fuel prices will eventually rise. So we're going to see a reduction in the, in the four-engine airplanes and, and see more of the dual-engine airplanes. And, hey, it's about time, right? Um, engines are getting more efficient. There's no reason that you need four engines right now. 
Uh, I see for the next couple of years, probably it's going to be a two engine kind of marketplace with a 777, 787, 767, which, which is mostly freighter now, and then the A350 uh, being the dominant one in Europe. Uh, it's, it's going to be a two engine aircraft marketplace for a while. So where do the economics, I mean, how many passengers do they have to have on a, on a plane to make a four engine make make equal financial sense? I mean, is, are those numbers just not going to catch up in the future? Uh, not until international travel picks up because otherwise yeah. there's really no reason to fly it. Like the, the 747, at least in the United States, for a while there it was going to Europe, but for the most part it was going to Asia or to Australia. And that, that stopped. That's totally stopped yeah. right now. So there's really no need for the aircraft at this moment. And, and, and there's really no need for like a freighter version of the thing because there's plenty of those 747s kicking around still. So you don't need a new one. Gotcha. So back to Airbus. I mean, they just let go of the A380. They delivered their last ones. Um, I mean, are they just kind of going step by step with uh, with Boeing? I mean, what do you, do you see either of these companies taking any risks in the future? Or is it really just going to be consistent downsizing? For the next couple of years, both both companies are at risk at the moment. Boeing, just because the seven thirty seven has been going on before the COVID nineteen crisis, and they were in a financial pinch before that. And they got a couple of, of, of development programs, um, the KC forty six, which is the tanker program, and they also have the triple seven program and they got a couple other things cooking it sounds like and then airbus always has something in the pipeline too so you're you're burning money on the r&d side at the same time you're trying to fulfill market share they're they're in and now with the new airplane market really drying up i think the number of sales in like may was essentially zero Uh, both those companies need that cash flow to keep workers employed it's sort of you know Rob from Peter to pay Paul sort of situation in the aircraft industry. You need those orders. And you need that cash flow to pay employees. And when when the sales dry up, then you have to make cut really drastic cuts to the employment, which is what they're doing. Have to. Yeah. What about the, uh, the the small aircraft market, like the business jet market? So we saw here the the 2021 NBAA Business Aviation Convention and yep. exhibition. Um, is going to be, is it canceled this year? It's canceled for this year. It was supposed to be down in Orlando. They're pushing it back. Yeah. They, well, mm-hmm. they had had that happen before. They had that happen in 2001 uh, with 9-11 where they pushed the convention. I think it was in New Orleans that year. They pushed that convention back later in the year. In this particular case, it looks like it's just uh, flat out canceled. Now, it was supposed to be take place down in Orlando and Florida at this particular moment is becoming more of a hot spot for the COVID-19. And, yeah, it's not good down there. Right. So I, I think until we got a handle on that, it just made sense. And, and MBAA, sorry, MBAA has actually had layoffs internally. So this is a little bit of a trouble spot for MBAA, which is a big proponent of business aviation. They've had to have some layoffs, and now this all their conventions are big money raisers for them. Uh that keeps everybody employed. So if they don't have a convention, they don't have that sort of income and revenue and advertising and sales that they normally have. And so now it really hurts them sort of going forward. But I, I think there's sort of an upside on the business aircraft. At least in the United States, some of the stigma has been lifted on the business aircraft for a while there. Uh, there was a in 2008 and nine, it was uh, sort of forbidden thought to actually go out and buy an aircraft and corporations were unloading a lot of their business jets as um as market pressures would have demanded 
But now with the COVID-19, I think it makes a lot more sense. You don't have high value uh, employees like a CEO, COO, CTO, uh, maybe flying commercially where they may be exposed to uh, COVID-19. It can really take down a company if you lose someone, especially if they've died from it. Yeah, They can really hurt your company. So it makes sense then to go ahead and get a business aircraft just because of the isolation part of it. It may make financial sense, longer term financial sense to have one of those aircraft or become part of a leasing program to pick up an aircraft and go with it at least for the next year or two until you kind of things settle out. So the business market and the business aircraft market may be picking up a little bit. We'll see how it plays. Yeah. Well, interesting enough, you just talked about, you know, the spread of it. So Italy is banning use of overhead bins and flights, which is such a weird thing to think about. I mean, it's such an integral part to flying is being able to carry on, Mm, but now You can no longer use the overhead baggage. They call them lockers. Lockers, yeah. Uh, but do you think do you think that's going to be a, a trend in the U.S.? Think people would tolerate that in the U.S.? They probably go. They probably throw a huge fit, like the biggest fit. They would throw a big fit. Well, in the United States and and in most of Europe too, you get charged to put uh, luggage in the cargo area of the aircraft. They and the the one that sticks to my head is I think it's United Airlines charges fifty bucks for two bags. I think that's what it is. But Southwest charges nothing. And yeah. which makes, to me, always makes a lot more sense. I understand the revenue part of that equation where they are, they're, they will generate more revenue if you check some luggage. And you got an employee, he's got to load it, got an employee, he's got to take it off. There's sort of downside risk for moving luggage. Things break, things get lost. So there's a cost to, to transporting luggage in the cargo versus having the passengers take their luggage on and off. But uh, having traveled recently uh, across the United States on a couple of flights, there is that sort of natural tendency when there's items in the overhead bin that people sort of gather around them to grab their gear as they're getting off the airplane and getting on the airplane for that matter. So when so when Southwest loads up an airplane, uh, they, I think they were actually calling out that they're asking people to, to load their uh, gear un- underneath the seats as much as they could and try to stay out of the overheads. But I, I don't think mm. that's possible in a sense. If they're trying to do for a separation issue, I get this. Um, why Italy and not everywhere else? I don't know. I don't. I still don't understand why. Why it would be just Italy? Because that phenomena happens everywhere. Uh, particularly, I've already sort of noticed on international travel, because everybody's so tired of being on the airplane, they just want to get off. But uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the crowding around the overhead bins has really got to stop, and at least for the time being, can everybody just slow down a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for business travel, I mean, if you're a person that, that is able to pack light mm. and you're in a hurry and you don't want to go through the, like, that would make a lot of people upset. Like, I don't want to wait an extra 40 minutes in my bags if I don't have to. Right. You know, and that, but that, we get it, you know, yeah. it's health. Delta, Delta, when we were flying uh, last week, Delta had a baggage guarantee. I think it was bags within 15 minutes was their guarantee. Which would make a big difference. One of the airports that yeah. always gets me is flying in and out of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, for whatever reason, takes forever to get your luggage in and out of there. And But other airports, fine. I mean, there's been, there's been cases uh, traveling relatively recently where I've come off the airplane. By the time I got down to baggage, uh, bags were there, ready to go. Uh, so, obviously, not having as many flights helps that. But... Yeah, it's you know the whole system's got to be thinking a little bit larger, especially with the COVID nineteen risks. 
Yeah, and of course, uh, American Airlines just announced. I think there's one other airline as well. United, yeah, United. All, all, yeah, the, all, all their flights are going to be back to full capacity mm-hmm. soon, starting well, starting July one. Right. So, I mean, this this was an inevitable thing, right? I mean, planes can't fly at two thirds capacity, can they? And make economic sense? They can if you raise prices, or they can if you got your your you know your fuel costs yeah. down and your employment. You know, employee costs down. Yeah, you can totally do it. Uh, Southwest is going to do it until September first, where they're going to keep the middle seats open. At least that's what they're saying today. As things, you know, as things progress, obviously they can change their mind. But United and American have said, "Forget it. Let's go. We can load up the airplane. We need to get the revenue." And they have a larger, kind of a different model than Southwest does. And maybe that model is putting a little more stress on them economically. I think the the cash burn per day is some astronomical number where you have to be flying, you have to be creating revenue. And I'm sure every passenger on that airplane reduces that loss. And they're, they're not looking at making profit right now. They're looking at, at loss reduction, which is a weird way to think about it. But I think some airlines are really yeah. in that mode. All right, so let's uh, we'll shift gears a little bit. So this week, what I want to talk about for engineering is is really the 737 um, Max test flights. So those are complete now. Yep. Alan, what did they find, and what were they looking for? Because this has been a big deal for a long time for for Boeing. Yeah, flight tests are tend to be the last part of any certification effort. And when Boeing flew, they flew a couple of flights this this past week. It looks like um, all those flight tests turned out to be positive. We haven't seen zero negative press about it. And uh, you got to imagine that Boeing knew what the results were before they put FAA pilots and observers in the airplane. <laughs> they, you always want to fly the airplane so you know what the answer is going to be. Uh, but it seems like now with the flight test being complete, that Boeing is headed towards uh, getting the restriction limitations off the airplane. Now, that happens via an airworthiness directive. So the, the FAA and everybody else will issue an airworthiness directive telling uh, owners of those aircraft what they have to go do to get those aircraft airworthy. Now, I'm sure Boeing's already communicated that list to most of the aircraft operators, so they have an idea what's coming. Uh, but some of those airplanes... Um, I, I don't know how they're going to manage uh, upgrading and retrofitting all those aircraft unless they got depots. They're going to send them to, or they're going to fly them all the way back to Seattle, which is what they may do to mod up those airplanes. Because it sounds like there's some obviously some wiring changes, some instrumentation changes, definitely some software changes, and it seems like we're going to get to some additional pilot training in the simulator, and that will be a fun time. Uh, just because of the number of pilots you got to get through those simulators and there's not a lot of simulators on the planet and so trying to get everybody through some simulator time uh, which is what Boeing is trying to avoid in the first place with the NCAS system. That seems like a a big deal because how I mean wasn't it um, it was one prominent airliner they said that hey we're only ordering 737 maxes if you can promise us there's no simulation time. Oh I'm sure. So So you wonder, like, if they if they're reneging on that deal or mm. yeah, sure. Uh, I don't know how they handle that because they're like, no, we're buying all Airbus unless you can guarantee it. Do it. Uh, guarantee us that. Well, so. I think Air, if Airbus does that, they're they're not thinking straight. Uh, one of the things that came out of the 737 Max investigations and all the uh, reviews and engineering time and looking at uh, 
the safety analysis, system safety analysis and functional hazard assessments. And I'm going to talk tactical for a minute. There's a lot of, there's a lot of probability and a lot of analysis done on system performance to determine if the system is adequate to meet the regulations or not. And the, uh, with, with, with part of that equation being the pilot performance. You expect that pilots behave in a certain way when some things happen on the airplane. And that was built into the system safety assessments. That the pilots, when X happened, pilots would do Y. Well, it turned out pilots didn't do Y. And then the system responded in a way that I'm not sure everybody grasped at the time. But the system, you know, repeatedly kept pushing nose down, kept pushing nose down to the point where the pilots couldn't recover it. Uh, That's an unforeseen consequence because I don't think Boeing definitely Boeing didn't think that was going to happen. So you got this mismatch of engineering interpretation of pilot responses. And then you have a whole bunch of pilots, most of which would have responded in the, in that manner. that was that they had assumed on the system safety assessment. And then a couple that didn't. So now if you get those pilots running through simulator training, you can lay eyes on everybody and, I think if Airbus is thinking straight too, simulator time is simulator time. Uh, that's a small cost. It's not. It's not negligible, but it's small relative to the PR disaster and the grounding of airplane disaster that Boeing's been through, and the cost of the stock and everything else, loss of jobs, you name it. That was caused by um, sort of not thought through engineering combined with some pilot reactions. So if you can get the pilots. Eyeballs on pilots from a Boeing, from a from an OEM aircraft OEM perspective, I think it's a better sense of how you should be designing the airplane. One and two, it may give you a little bit of veto power on who's going to fly your airplane, and that would be good. That would be good. So when you say veto power, what exactly do you mean? I think that some of the airlines, like uh, it's, it's it's sort of a well known fact, all right. It's not like we all sit around drinking coffee talking about this, but there are some airlines that have better training than others. And there's some groups of pilots that have uh, more flight experience than others. And in that difference is where uh, details and problems can occur. Because when, you do, when you're doing a system safety assessment, so you're, all, all the engineers sit around and make sure that the system that they just designed won't kill anybody. And when you're sitting down around the table, all the automated systems, you know how they will perform. You've tested them. You've done analysis on them, hundreds of hours of analysis on these things. You you understand how that system will work. And then you put this human in the middle of it. And it's that human part that is the wild card in some of these, in some of these crashes. And if you can look at overall in the history of aircraft, the number of crashes have been associated with pilot error. It's... And a very, very significant portion of crashes is pilot error, especially for smaller airplanes. On larger airplanes, it can be that way too. It's very unusual that it's a quote unquote system. Uh, a lot of times it's maintenance and it's pilot error. Very few, not a lot of instances where it's just basic design flaw with the aircraft that leads to crashes. So removing some of that pilot error or pilot variance is going to make the aircraft safer. But who's, who's validating that? Evidently, in some parts of the world, it, there's not a lot of validation that's going on. And as if I'm an aircraft, if I'm an aircraft company, and I'm making airplanes, and I'm relying on thousands of pilots that I never seen before, and I have no idea what their capabilities are. I'm not sure what I got. 
And if it's going to cost me my company, which it almost did in Boeing's case, I probably want to have some say. And I know there's been times yeah. on other airplane companies where um, they'll take, well, I've been around it a little bit. So, you know, they'll take prospective pilots out or owners in particular who are pilots to fly these, to fly some airplanes. And, and it's not unusual for, um, to get a, you know, a, a, a someone who's prospectively buying an aircraft to get an airplane and you can just see it's just so it's just too much for them it's usually when they make a transition from a, a piston airplane to a jet that's usually where the transition occurs where because everything, everything just is sped up everything is just sped up and, and mm-hmm. that's where pilots start to make errors so in that transition from a propeller driven airplane or a slower airplane to a, a larger airplane because the speeds go up and everything just happens and there's just a lot more things to, to do a lot more buttons and buzzers and beeps in the cockpit that's where that transition happens and and problems occur so um i would like to see oems have some say at the table about pilot training and i think it's time and i not not that that we can just say hey we, we don't really care what pilot training is we're trying to minimize pilot training because we can sell more airplanes you better at this point balance that off about the potential cost impact of what that's going to mean if some airplanes fall out of the sky because the pilots aren't ready for what you just delivered. Somebody's got to do that. All right. So we're going to shift gears into our, our third segment here. So this is our, our learn from failure, which this is sometimes going to be an engineering thing. But uh, this week we're going to talk about Pakistan. So big, I mean, these are crazy headlines that up to potentially 40% of pilots in Pakistan, which right now they're saying that's 262 out of the total 860 active pilots in the country, were not given proper exams and essentially have fake flying licenses. And that means either they had someone else sit for the exam on their behalf, um, or perhaps there are some other ways uh, around the system. So Alan, what do you have on this? This is terrifying and crazy all at once. And we were just talking about you know, pilot safety and training and, and the standards. I mean, what do you got on this situation? This is nuts. Flat out nuts. It's crazy. Yeah. You could have someone flying your plane that's an imposter, essentially. Like that's, yeah, it's mind blowing. There's, there, there's more oversight in taking the SAT to get, to get into college than there is to getting an aircraft pilot's license. That's what I just said, that there's, there's more oversight. When you go take the SAT, which in the United States is the standardized achievement test uh, to d- determine you know, where you may fit in the different variety of colleges that are around in the United States in particular, there's, a, there's an ID check. Right? So you have to bring like a license with you, a, photo, a, a valid piece of uh, photo ID with you to get, inside that, get <laughs> yeah. inside that place, right? And we just had a big scandal in the United States where uh, there were been some people who had falsified, right? They falsified their SAT scores to get in some of these schools, mm-hmm. right? And that, it, what's a huge scandal? Well, who the hell cares if some 18-year-old gets into USC, right? I care about the, the person who is faking an aircraft pilot's license who's flying around thousands of people. That is nuts, Right, and it gets back to that same thing where I was talking about the OEMs having some, having some oversight about who's flying their airplanes. For goodness sakes, you could tell within thirty seconds, I bet, for most of these simulator uh, uh, training people that if you got a pilot that doesn't know what they're doing, I bet they have that conversation once a month. That here comes a pilot. This this person does not have the rigors of and the necessarily skill set to fly this aircraft. 
why are they flying this aircraft? You saw it in some of the Boeing e emails back and forth too, right? And it's just frustrating as all get out that uh, from the engineering side, as, an, as and I'm going to just vouch for the engineers here for a minute, like we put a lot of time and effort into making sure those aircraft are safe. And then we put somebody in the seat who's not ready for it. And then when it yeah. all hits the fan and then the aircrafts crash, who are they coming after? Well, those stupid engineers because they're idiots or, or, or they just didn't care or they were negligent or they weren't doing their job. That is not the case. I, you can rarely find where that has been the case versus pilot error. Rarely find the case where the engineers were maliciously out there trying to break the airplane or the mechanics or anybody else. What you find is that the large propensity of aircraft accidents have to do with pilot error. That's where the effort should lie. And when you have and we have a group, a couple hundred people, and that's not the only place it's occurring. It can't be right. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of parts, and I'm sure it happens in the United States. It isn't like we're immune from this either. But it gets to the point where there's two people in that cockpit. One of those two people had better be trained, and you better be looking at the other other seat over there to make sure the person next to them is trained also. And if they're not trained, we need to be flagging it. It'd be like very similar when pilots get on the airplane drunk, which you see, you know, a couple times a year, right? Somebody on that airplane, another member of that flight crew, speaks up and says, "You're not flying today. You're coming off this airplane," yeah. and, those, and those pilots get arrested, and you see it regularly, I want to say regularly, a couple times a year. It isn't like it's once every 10 years. You can read about it once or twice a year where a pilot has 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 been drinking within, I think it's eight hours of a flight. Yeah, they're going to pick that up. So if the if the pilot is drunk or has is, a, is hung over, they're going to flag it. But if that pilot only has, you know, uh, moderate to, to low-level skills to fly that airplane, we say nothing. That's crazy. That's crazy. You wouldn't do it if, if someone's driving a car, you're sitting in the passenger seat, you wouldn't let somebody who's a poor driver sit there and, and get you killed. Why are we letting that happen on an airplane? It's beyond me. Yeah, it's also a strange idea that you would want to do something that dangerous yes. fake. Like, I, I personally wouldn't want to fake be a pilot. Like, I feel, I would crash. It isn't the expected outcome that you're going to crash at some point, or you're just going to find yourself in an oh crap moment where you're way over your head and then you get exposed. I mean, that seems like one of the things that you just don't really want to fake. I don't know. It's 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 baffling in so many ways. Well, I think it's a way. Yeah. It's a way. Being a pilot is a very prestigious thing. Well, we made a movie about it, right? Uh, what what's the name of that movie? Um, well, the guy's a, a teenager and he fakes being a pilot and he's flying around the world writing bad checks. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, catch me if you can. Catch me if you can, right? So there's a <laughs> so. I mean, there you go, right? They thought that guy was a pilot for the longest time. He was flying all over the place. He'd put on the uniform and he's sitting in the cockpit, for God's sakes. What? what? <laughs> it isn't like this is a new phenomenon. How, how easy was, was that? That was the Wild West. Well, it was the Wild yeah. West. Yeah, it totally was. But I mean, what was? why did he do that? Well, he did it, one, because he could travel, but two, because there's a lot of prestige to it. I mean, being a pilot is, in, even in today's world, where you know we have a skewed sense of reality, but... Being a pilot is hard. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's like being a race car driver. There's not a lot of really good race car drivers, and yet there's thousands of pilots flying airplanes today. That's a skill set that is not easy to acquire. And once you have it, um, you want to hold on to it because it does have prestige. When you come onto an airplane, you always give a little bit of respect to the pilot who just brought you to Orlando or wherever you're flying to because they, they, they literally hold – you. they hold – 
your life in their hands. And so it yeah, is very, it's, sure. it does, it does, and, and some, I, I might, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I, I think in some places, having that level of prestige feels good, regardless of what your skills are yeah, as a pilot, sure. right? Yeah. And I guess if you're a con artist, you're not really looking that far into nope. the future. You're just nope. trying to see the the high you get again from, yeah, that prestige and, and all that, I guess. I'm the but, captain, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's crazy. So, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Are they going to overhaul? Well, and the other thing that, that we talked about off air was that beyond these obviously appalling instances of fake licenses, there's also just the issue of uh, flight time standards, mm-hmm. right? So in the U.S., it's 1,500 hours of flight time to be a, a pilot or a co-pilot. But overseas, it's it's way lower than that in some countries, right? It's about 20% of that less. Yeah. So there you go, right? That's, that's just a recipe for disaster. Well, who governs that? I mean, why why does why does like a big, like EASA doesn't govern that? I mean, no, why is it left I, up to I think individual it's, countries? I, I think it's ICAO, which is the International Aviation uh, Organization that sort of sets standards, worldwide standards. There is a worldwide standard board there. But why the hours are so low, probably because the member countries want it to be low because they don't have pilots with that much experience and they need to fly airplanes. So they made the argument that, hey, if you have a couple hundred hours of flight experience, you can fly a 737. <laughs> that, that, that seems crazy to me because even on the military side, we don't put pilots in uh, advanced aircraft without having a good bit of flight instruction and hours in the seat because it does matter. I think even get our a driver's license in this in my state may take more hours. It seems like it takes more hours to get your driver's license as a teenager yeah. as to fly a damn airplane. Like what is going on? Uh, but until and have you seen any push to change those hours? I haven't. I haven't seen one. No. I haven't seen anybody say, "Hey, maybe that's the problem," because Boeing and Airbus are afraid they're not going to have any sales. So, if Airbus is willing to sell an airplane to a pilot that has 400 hours of flight experience, and Boeing doesn't, then Boeing loses a sale. We can't have that, right? And goodness knows, we got I don't know how many world bodies that are making decisions, but why we're not making that one, I don't know, uh, because we got to get over this crazy crash. That's number of crashes are going on in certain parts of the world because of lack of pilot training. That's that's yeah. got to happen. And that's yeah. And that's the that's the I think the interesting takeaway is like you said, you put so much engineering time into these aircraft, and then you put a, a human in the seat who's not equipped to fly. Yeah. And just like it, it's all for nothing. Yes. If the the pilot's not competent. Frustrating. Frustrating. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.